Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting brain-twisting episode. Today, we've got Dr. Kat Toops, who's a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, and previously boarded in geriatric psychiatry. She is also certified practitioner with the Institute for Functional Medicine. She was an assistant professor of psychiatry at UC Davis and ran clinical trials as the founder medical director of Bay Area Research Institute for 12 years, where over a 100 clinical trials later, she found out that maybe the elusive cure for brain and psychiatric illness was not going to be found in a pill. She is an amazingly qualified, trained, Walnut Creek-based doctor who I am so excited to have on our show today to talk about brain, dementia, Alzheimer's, and how can we keep it all together in our later years. Dr. Toops, welcome. Oh, hi, Rena. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be able to hopefully share a little bit about um, all of the things we're learning for um, both preventing and reversing dementia. Absolutely. We are so excited to have you here because you know what? You cross 40 and one of the first things women start complaining about is brain fog. And you cross kind of 60, 65, and everybody starts complaining about brain fog and dementia and all kinds of little symptoms that mean we no longer have the brain capacity we had when we were in our 20s and 30s. So everything you're going to share today, I'm sure people are going to be taking notes and executing on. But, you know, my first question to you was, how did you transition from kind of being a, a board-certified psychiatrist? So really understanding that it's not pills and that really nutrition and lifestyle and food are critically important. What, what drove that change? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, I think I've always been concerned with health, though I have to say in our traditional medical training, we're, we're trained for working with illness and not with health and not with prevention. Um, but of course, like many people, it was my own health issues that, um, led me to take take the deep um, look into functional medicine. Um, I had suffered from immune issues kind of off and on throughout my adult life. And finally, I crashed and burned in a big way, and I developed multiple chemical sensitivity. I had become allergic to absolutely everything in my environment. I was covered with rashes and hives. I literally could not get out of a chair for a year. And if I could get out of that chair and walked into a store, just the smells would further exacerbate the problems. And as a sequelae of all that inflammation that was happening in my body, it was eating up my brain. Mm. And and so this um, exploration of dementia, I've learned from the inside. I actually was quite demented. Um, when I stopped working, I was doing Alzheimer clinical trials, and I came to realize that I was as cognitively impaired as some of my patients. I'd go to test them on a memory test where I gave them three words to remember, and I'd have to write those three words down because I could not remember the words, and I had used that test for 20 years. Oh, my God. The doctor was the patient. 
Exactly. I, I, I could not drive a car safely. I lost the ability to back up and parallel park. I just could no longer, my brain could not sequence those things. I, I couldn't sequence all the inputs coming in while I was driving. I would get confused dialing a phone number. So I have disconcerting. to say, uh, beyond disconcerting, you know, and, and, and so I know what it's like when people have cognitive decline. It's an insidious process and it's creeping in on you and you're just trying so hard to survive that sometimes it's harder to step back and figure out the big picture of what's causing it. Because the one thing that I really want to say about, about dementia and neurodegenerative disorders, because that's really what dementia is. It's your brain that's degenerating is that, is that there's hope that it's reversible. If we can figure out the factors that are driving this neurodegeneration, then we have the, the tools to reverse many of these things. Um, so that's the, the biggest thing that I want to start this discussion with is that there's hope because people do feel like, oh, I'm getting old. My brain's going. It's inevitable. And it's not inevitable. There are people in their 90s whose brains are so sharp and cognitively intact. And so we need to be studying how do those people maintain that and look at all these other factors that we really have at our fingertips to reverse so that we don't have to have this inexorable decline into losing our brains. I love your message of hope. You know, I was in South Africa for a few weeks and on our very last day in Livingston at the Victoria's Falls, we had a guide. And we were kind of all um, admiring the falls and talking about a few things. And we talked about the fact that, you know, we need to take a picture of this because we're not going to remember when we're 90 oh. what it was like. And he said, sure, you will. My my dad's 102. And by the way, at 99, he was still biking everywhere. He only just stopped biking a couple of years ago. So to your point, there are people who at the age of 99 were independent and right and biking everywhere and remembering everything. So if we are not that strong mentally at 70, the question is why? And then what can we do? And or let's take it to your earlier comment at 40. Right? Exactly. Because we want to catch this before there's obvious cognitive decline. So what are the symptoms? How do I know? Because I think one of the things I've heard is people wait too long. And at that mm -hmm. point, the degeneration is pretty far advanced and so reversing is harder. How can we start catching signs of very early onset? Mm -hmm. um, there's a, there's some terminology for some of the diagnoses. And of course we have like, you know, Frank Alzheimer's, Alzheimer disease. And, and before that, there's a syndrome called mild cognitive impairment or MCI. And there's some, you know, formal criteria scoring on this and certain criteria. And there's also a condition called SCI, which means subjective cognitive impairment. And that's where we want to start. People generally know and have some sense that their brain is not working the way it used to. They're, you know, forgetting little details or having trouble organizing things that used to be second nature. Um, you know, the, the, the typical things of sort of misplacing your keys or forgetting what you wanted to say. Well, okay, you know, that happens a little, but if, if things are happening, you know, fairly consistently, um, those should be warning signs if you don't retrieve data from your brain as quickly. So, you know, your processing speed, I think that's something that I see kind of decline early yes. in people. 
Um, certainly the, um, being able to express yourself and find the right words were finding difficulty. And um, I know we're going to talk some more about hormones, but that is often a, an early sign, um, um, particularly for women, since we have a more abrupt decline into perimenopause. Um, one of the early signs of hormonal decline is problems with your memory and word finding problems. Um, and I recall when I um, hit uh, 4041 and started having trouble with retrieving the right words. And I would sometimes say the wrong word, like I meant to say, open the door and I'd say, open the window. Mm -hmm. I went to my, my doctor and she said, Oh, wow. Welcome to perimenopause. She said, this is classic perimenopause. Everybody has this. So I was comforted for about two minutes thinking, <laughs> Oh, it's perimenopause. Everybody has this. I'm in a club, but, a very special right, club. Right. But then I thought about it and I knew the data that one out of two women was going to have Alzheimer's disease. And I thought, now, wait a minute. What about those of us who are getting symptomatic early on like this? Am I going to be in that 50% club that's going to have Alzheimer's disease? Mm -hmm. And, you know, fast forward to what we know now. And I mean, I have dozens of studies in my files about the effects of hormones on cognition. So we know that the minute a woman starts losing her estrogen, mm -hmm. the neurons start degenerating in her brain. And that's been shown pretty clearly. And, and, you know, some of my patients say, oh, well, I want to be natural. I, I don't want to take hormone replacement. And that made sense, you know, up until about a century ago. We just didn't live that much longer after menopause. So it didn't really matter if our brains declined a bit. But now we're expecting to live, you know, 30, 40 years longer. And as we need our, we need our brains to work. So there was an interesting study that, um, that was done out of Stanford a couple of years ago. Um, Natalie Razgon, I believe, was the, um, the lead author. And they looked at women who had been on hormone replacement and they randomized them either to stop it or stay on it. And they followed them for two years and they did neuropsych testing and, and imaging of the brains. And what they found was at the end of two years, 100% of the women who stopped their estrogen had cognitive decline and they could see it on the head scans. And when you can see changes on a brain MRI, that's wow. not, that's not mild. No. You know, I mean, if you're already seeing atrophy in the brain, then that's a problem. But um, there's another very prolific researcher out of, I believe she's UCLA, Roberta Hinton. She's published quite a, quite a few papers on this, but it's pretty incontrovertible, um, the effect of hormones on the brain. And, and it's interesting when I used to do Alzheimer trials, um, those were long-term studies and they'd go on for one to two years. And I had two patients back then whose doctors decided to stop their hormone replacement. And they were told, oh, you're old, you're demented, you're way past menopause, you don't need this stuff anymore. So they stopped it. Well, those women would come back in 30 days later and say, this was a really bad month. My memory is so much worse. And in both of those cases, I remember them well. I could see and just processing as well. And we would, of course, do our assessments and we did neuropsych testing at every visit. And and I could see that they had declined in 30 days. And so in those two cases, I said, please go back to your doctor, get back on your hormones. At, the, at that point in my training, I wasn't experienced in working with hormones. And mm -hmm. now, now it's become, of course, a big part of my practice because it's so trophic for the brain that 
I need to be sure my patients can, you know, have adequate um, treatment with the hormones. Of course. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a major driver with cognition. And conversely, when we have people who have been off of hormones, even for 15, 20, 25 years, we start the hormones, we can sometimes see really rapid improvement in people's cognition. That's really good to hear because, you know, we had uh, a very special doctor come and talk to us about hormones and menopause and perimenopause to our group of about 30 ladies, 30 women, all mm-hmm. who, whom were above 40 years of age. Mm-hmm. And um, everyone had to kind of go, go around the room and share what their top symptoms and issues were. The number one commonality was memory issues and brain fog. Like I go into a room and I can't remember why I was there. Or right. I pick up the phone and I can't remember the phone number. And it is the, it is not only the most common, but it is the most common bothersome symptom. Because I think it's just so important for us as human beings to have our cognition, to have a sense of control. And when you can't remember something, it, it really does make you feel like you're out of control. Um, it's, it's a, it truly is a very scary feeling and I've had it. And you're absolutely right. Once I began my hormones and a supplement called GPC, which I swear by, I feel I have better memory now than I ever did in my 30s. So we know that there are solutions to that. And thank you for sharing how important hormones are. So for all of those in their perimenopause, menopause uh, stage that are going through these issues, you know, go talk to your doctors about hormones. One of the other things that I've heard, there's been a new study in Harvard. Um, it was in the Harvard Health blog that talked about the effect of Benadryl or antihistamines and brain. And they talked specifically about taking these types of drugs for three years or more was associated with a 54% higher dementia risk. Talk a little bit about that. And what do you recommend to patients who are on Benadryl? And I was, for example, on two Benadryls a night and two Zyrtex in the morning for an entire year. (laughs) Uh, What do you recommend to patients like that as alternatives? Right. Okay. Well, those are two two different questions so let's start with the effect of the drugs on the brain for starters mm-hmm. so um yes i think that that data on using the antihistamines long term especially the long acting ones like benadryl is pretty profound and i recall one study where they tested people's reaction times and they said that basically people taking chronic antihistamines the reaction time was was equal to something like having a couple of drinks of alcohol. So they didn't feel impaired, but when they tested them, their reaction time was impaired. So that tells you it's having an effect on the brain. And so if we're taking any kind of medication that's blocking things, it's going to have sequelae in our bodies. You know, we have this beautiful complex biochemistry and everything feeds into everything else. And it, it's just, it's amazing to, you know, understand the human biochemistry, but it's got to keep flowing. And so if we put something in like a wrench in the works that blocks one thing, it's going to have downstream effects. So we know that a lot of medications affect the brain. And so antihistamines are certainly one of them. Um, um, anticholinergic medicines, 
um, are another one. And, and these are given sometimes like candy, especially to elderly people. They help urinary incontinence. They help muscle relaxation, different kind of things. But we've known for a long time that those can cause confusion in the elderly. But you don't have to just be elderly for these things to affect you. Um, the other kind of blockers, we give people statin medications, and that's supposed to block their cholesterol absorption and lower their cholesterol. And now those statin medications have a black box warning saying they cause cognitive decline. So, you know, that's pretty well known. And yet they're still given out like candy. And the only clear evidence for using statins is that they're effective if you've had a heart attack. And there's no no data that shows that they change people's longevity or, or outcome. And yet we know they're causing dementia. We know those statins block your CoQ10. And CoQ10 is one of our really powerful antioxidants. And CoQ10 is required by every cell in our body um, to make ATP for energy. So we have mitochondria in all of our cells, and that generates our cellular energy or ATP. And in order to do that, one of the final steps requires CoQ10. So if we take these statin medications and we're not supplementing CoQ10, what's going to happen? Things are going to degenerate. You know, um, proton pump inhibitors, all the acid blocking drugs are another blocker class of drugs that, you know, gives people relief from their burning in their stomach and their reflux. It gives them a short-term relief, but it causes improper absorption of all kinds of nutrients. And you, then you don't have acid to break down your food and, and to absorb your nutrients. And what's going to happen without proper nutrition? You don't have to have a PhD to know that's going right. to be a problem. So then it kind of feeds into your second part of the question. Okay, what do you do when you need to take these medications? And that, well, that's a, a long and complex um, answer for that. Um, and, you know, it's different, different things with different um, conditions, but it kind of takes us to a general tenet of functional medicine. People I'm so often asked, well, what is functional medicine? And it's fairly simple answer. In functional medicine, we want to get at the root cause of why someone is sick and we want to, and it's, I don't want to say root causes is a better way to say it because it's never any one thing, right? It's always a, a multitude of factors and they all come together and create the perfect storm for someone to get sick. But when we work with those root causes and we put those all in order, then people can get better and then they don't need to take medication. So sometimes people need medication in the short term. You know, if you're bleeding, you need a Band-Aid. You need something in the short term. You know, but our goal in functional is to look at all those various factors that are causing the problem and put them in order. And, you know, I think an underlying uh, theme with that is inflammation. So we tend to think of things in terms of inflammation as a driver of illness and um, inflammation in the short term is a useful thing. If you get cut, your body will make inflammation to help heal that wound. But chronic inflammation over a long period of time breaks down systems and, and causes disease. So um, for your example about, about uh, the allergies, well, that's a, a sort of maybe a, a talk in itself, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, there are multifactorial things with allergies and um, with most things in inflammation and, and in all of functional medicine tenants, where we start first is working with the gut 
And the health of the gut determines the health of the entire organism. The root of our immune system is in our gut Mm -hmm. and allergies are an immune disorder. So um, looking at, you know, the various factors that might be affecting the integrity of the gut um, is a place to start. And I think probably I'll just stop right there so we can come back to some of the issues with dementia. But the issues with dementia are the same as with any chronic illness. I love what you share on your Facebook. You talk about the common denominator of most chronic illness being inflammation. And you talk mm-hmm. about the fact that inflammation that affects your gut can manifest as bloating, constipation, acid reflux, or when it impacts the thyroid, you end up with something like Hashimoto's or Hashimoto's, or if it's in the pancreas, uh, it can manifest as diabetes or metabolic syn- syndrome. If inflammation's mm-hmm. in your joints, it can be arthritis. And you kind of talk about depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar, PTSD, etc., as potentially being inflammation in the brain. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what's causing this inflammation. How do you go about finding the root cause of inflammation in your patients? And then, of course, how do you address it? Right, right. Well, let me say that the notion of all of um, the psychiatric illnesses, <clears throat> excuse me, that you mentioned, um, we kind of have a saying, leaky gut equals leaky brain. Mm-hmm. And leaky gut is kind of just like what it sounds like. Various things can affect the lining of our gut and the integrity of the gut and literally create microscopic holes in the gut that allow food particles and bacteria and viruses that come in with our food to get absorbed into the bloodstream, and that activates an inflammatory response. So our blood is supposed to be sterile, and so when these invaders get into the bloodstream, um, our immune system says, okay, there's an attack, let's call out the troops, and it calls out the troops, and it calls out all of these inflammatory cytokines to help kill those invaders. And so those inflammatory cytokines are what wreak havoc in various systems of our body, and that are drivers of inflammation. And sometimes they go to different systems in different people. So for you, maybe it's all going to go to your nasopharynx and you're going to have all these fat sinus allergies. For me, it went to my brain and was eating up my brain. So um, those inflammatory cytokines, because they're in the bloodstream, they travel all around and they can breach the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain and activate an inflammatory response in the brain. And so the notion of psychiatric illness now, I mean, I was trained, okay, here's the diagnosis, here's the medication for it. That doesn't work. Okay, try this other medication. It's a different mechanism of action. But those medications are just Band-Aids. And so when we want to figure out the underlying cause, we need to figure out what is driving that inflammation in the brain because I've just seen it over and over now with my patients. When we get this inflammation under control, I've seen people get off of medications they've taken their entire life for psychiatric conditions. Um, so wow. that, so back to where does it start for a lot of people? It starts in the gut. Um, there's many factors that come in from our external world that can drive the health of the gut. So, 
the quality of the food we're eating, the chemicals that are sprayed in that food, the chemicals that we put on our body that are absorbed systemically, um, you know, the infections that we're having, the health of our immune system. So there, there's many you know, stress. Stress alone can can destroy the lining of your gut. So we have, you know, we have to look at all these various factors and they're different for different people. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the notion of, you know, personalizing what's going on for each person. But the the easiest place for people to start their own mm-hmm. self-healing is to look at their diet. Mm. Look at their diet and look at the the toxins in their personal care products, what they're using cleaning in their house. Are they, you know, spraying pesticides um, and insecticides? Those kind of things are all all big drivers of the health of the organism as a whole. Let's talk diet. Okay. What do you recommend as the top three, four dietary changes to make sure that you're quelling inflammation on a daily basis? So I think that the the health of our population really declined starting in the 60s when we got processed foods. Mm. And they probably were around before that, but, you know, I recall – uh, hamburger helper. That was one of the oh, first yeah. things. You could buy it in a box and you could, you know, get some ground meat and throw all this, you know, dehydrated processed stuff. And there was a meal. And, you know, my mother was a professional and had seven kids. And, you know, I, we, we grew up eating, eating healthy and eating a balanced meal and eating, you know, some of all the food groups at every meal. But there was a time when that processed food came into our lives and, um, and I'm sure that was the start of a decline for many, many people. So the first thing is we want people to eat real food. We don't want people to be eating things out of boxes and bags. And yes, there's some necessity for having, um, you know, some quick access to food, but thankfully we're getting, um, we're getting some healthier snacks. And, um, and, and quick things. But in general, uh, you know, the t- classic advice of shop on the outside of the supermarket, walk around the outside where they have the fresh fruits and vegetables and meat and chicken and eggs. Um, that's where you want to get the bulk of your food from. And, and then the, the other, the other part, um, that I think is, is really important. And I understand it's an economic factor, but um, you either will pay now or pay later in the cost of illness. But it's so important to try to eat organic food and mm-hmm. free range, free range meats. And, you know, we have a, a mounting um, body of data with the effects of, you know, of the glyphosate and what that's the roundup that's, you know, sprayed on um, so many of the, produce crops that are being grown. And, and also, I might add, it's sprayed on wheat to harvest it. So wheat is not a GMO food right. per se, but the way that, that the wheat is harvested is um, when it's time for harvest, they saturate the fields with Roundup and that quickly kills it and it makes it easy to harvest. And then the farmers put that Roundup in the granaries and they know not to go in there for a couple of weeks until that Roundup evaporates because they know it's toxic for them to go in and breathe that. Mm -hmm. But somehow thinking is, oh, now it's evaporated and it's safe to eat this wheat that's been saturated with Roundup. And I can tell you that, no, that it's that's not the case. It's still there and it's still a factor. And I'd like to say a little bit about the the free range um, 
the free range meat as well, because um, we're talking about inflammation and ways that we can keep our inflammation down. Um, we know that feedlot beef is highly inflamed. And one of the criticisms now of the standard American diet or the SAD diet for short is that because of eating all of this um, processed food that's devoid of nutrients and then also adding in all of the, the chemicals, is that the standard American diet is very high in omega-6 fatty acids, and those are pro-inflammatory. And we take fish oil, which is an omega-3 fatty acid, because that is anti-inflammatory. Now, we need a little bit of omega-6. We need a balance of those things, but the standard diet is very high in omega-6, and so people are in this inflamed state. And we know with the beef that the feedlot beef is very high in omega-6 fatty acids. So they're not fed their natural diet. They're fed grains, and they're fed grains to make them fat. So grains make people fat. They make cows fat. Grains mm -hmm turn straight into sugar, carbs. I, I ask my patients to see this equation, carbs equal sugar. So if you're eating carbs, they turn straight into sugar. So the cows are fat. And we know that when you are fat, and especially when you have mid-abdominal fat, that fat secretes its own inflammatory cytokines. And so people that are carrying all this fat in their midsection are having a high level of inflammation and and that inflammation drives more inflammation and so it's kind of a sad a sad situation where people are told by their doctors you're overweight you need to diet and exercise and so they diet and exercise and they can't lose the weight because they are in such an inflamed state that they need help at that point to you know look at other factors to decrease the inflammation and once you decrease the inflammation people can lose the weight so one way you can decrease it is looking at what you're eating so the the feedlot beef is high in omega-6 and they're also kept in a high stress situation mm -hmm. and that drives cortisol and we know that cortisol or stress hormone can also further cause us to hold on to all of that fat in our body it tells our body that there's danger and an emergency and hold on to all your calories because you might need them. And so when we look at free-range beef, it's totally flipped. The, to the free-range beef is high in omega-3s and it's low in omega-6s. So all of the rap about meat is bad for you because it drives inflammation, it drives heart disease. Well, all of that information came from studying feedlot beef. And it's quite different when you look at free-range beef. And I don't want to say, okay, this is a recipe like just eat beef all day. Um, some people think that, you know, that when you eat paleo, oh, you eat meat. And actually the reality is if you want to be healthy, you eat a little bit of meat and you eat a lot of bit, uh, a, a larger amount of fruits and vegetables and animal um, vegetable products. Um, but the, so the diet is a, is a huge driver of inflammation, and that's a place where each of us can start easily um, on our, taking control of our own health is looking, what, looking at what we're eating. That makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I have heard from some people is I'm eating healthy, I got rid of the processed stuff, but mm -hmm. I still have inflammation. And I know I've heard some of our other expert guests talk about detoxing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you recommend to your patients if they have gotten on track with the food? What do you recommend in terms of detoxing? And that's a broad question, and there's not a one-size-fits-all because it depends on what is the source of that toxins. So, you know, the first level that, that we 
can look at from a testing perspective is we can look at things and it's easily tested by Quest or LabCorp, or you can look at your methylfolate or MTHFR genetic mutation. And people who have one or two copies of this mutation don't detoxify as well. And that's something that's easy to fix once you find it by, you know, starting on B vitamins. And if you have two copies of the mutation, adding in some extra methylfolate and that sets this whole biochemical pathway uh, into functioning better. And that, that methylation pathway generates methyl groups to bind our toxins. So if you have two copies of this mutation, if you got one copy from each parent, um, the general teaching is that your methylation cycle is about 70% less active, 70%. And that's pretty significant. And so that pathway generates methyl groups that bind our toxins. And it also drives the production of glutathione, which is our most important antioxidant in our body. And so if you're not um, in with your own biochemistry, mm-hmm. being able to adequately bind your toxins, what's going to happen over time, you're going to get toxic, you're going to get sick. I have two copies of that mutation. And um, you know, I got really sick and really broken. And, you know, it's just one of many factors if you can find all these different factors. Um, but definitely, um, it's quite easy to fix that, that problem. Um, and it's not as complicated as, as some people would have you believe, but it's easy to ask your doctor to test that mutation. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a, you know, different websites, mthfrsupport.net has lots of great information about that. And, um, uh, let's see, Ben Lynch's website, I think it's seekinghealth.com also has a lot of information about that. So that's one thing. Sometimes our biochemistry determines who's going to have more proclivity to getting cancer or getting toxic. Um, sometimes our liver enzymes aren't working mm-hmm. and, and that can happen from infections. Um, I mean, it's pretty well known if you drink too much, it can impair your liver. Um, but medications are all, the most medications, some are broken down by the kidneys, but most are broken down by the liver. And so I find the more medications somebody is on, the more likely they're going to be toxic. Their liver's working hard to break down medications. And then the medications themselves have food dyes and fillers that sometimes people are reacting to, like lactose. And, and so... I feel like sometimes being on, you know, six medications is a big driver of people's inflammatory status. Um, so, so as far as detoxification, it kind of, kind of depends. I mean, you know, I can do testing to look at people's levels of chemical toxins. I can do testing to look at their heavy metal burden in their body. And, you know, it's sadly, everybody has some level of metals and chemicals in their body. But some people that I test can be off the charts high in those things. And in that case, then they need to do more targeted and specific detoxification for for those kind of problems. Constipation is a serious problem for so many people. Mm -hmm. And, And if you are constipated, you are building up toxins in your body because, you know, the, the, our, our elimination system is designed to take those toxins mm-hmm. and you know, send them out of our body. And so, you know, when people tell me they're only going to the bathroom twice a week, all those toxins are getting resorbed in their body. And so sometimes that is, you know, going to take some help to resolve for people. I believe you mentioned SIBO earlier, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and, 
And um, that's often a driver for constipation. People get the wrong mix of bacteria in their gut. And and it's been a whole growing body of information. It's another talk in itself about how to work with SIBO, but it can be worked with. And, and it, it the you know, the the mixture of the microbes can change. And one way you change that is by changing your diet. We know if somebody changes their diet um, in, in one day, if somebody eliminates gluten in one day, their whole microbiome is different. If they switch from vegetarian to meat eating in one day, their whole microbiome is different. So the foods that we eat are, are, are definitely the biggest driver of the health in the gut and, and kind of, you know, the bottom line good direction for having health in your gut is diversity. And so now that we're able to look at the microbiome, if you do testing through places like Ubiome, they'll give you a diversity index and they'll tell you how much diversity do you have in the microbiome of your gut. And the problem when people are sick is that they often are forced to restrict their diets because they're reacting to things. And then you kind of get in a spiral because the more you restrict, the less diverse your microbiome is. And we know now that 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 microbial diversity is what um, really determines um, our, our health or illness for chronic disease. I, I want to tell you, there's a, there's a tribe in, in Africa called the Hazda tribe, and um, this, this is a kind of a primitive hunter-gatherer type tribe. And they've discovered that the Hasta people have no chronic illness. Hmm. So they don't have heart disease. They don't have diabetes. They don't have hypertension. They don't have di um, diabetes. They don't have Alzheimer's. And what, so of course the world wants to know why are these people so healthy, right? What, what, what do they have? Well, what they have is the most diverse microbiome in the world. And why do they have this diverse microbiome? It comes down to the amount of fiber that they eat. Mm -hmm. And the recommendation for, for us is that we eat 50 grams of fiber a day. And most of us are not getting anywhere close to 50 grams of fiber a day. But the Hasta tribe eats 200 grams of fiber a day. So fiber is a prebiotic wow. and the prebiotic feeds all of our good probiotics. Um, there's another tribe in the Amazon, and they have the second most diverse microbiome in the world. And much like the Hasta, they're eating all these roots and tubers and, you know, very high amounts of fiber. And they also have a very low incidence of chronic disease. So, so definitely, you know, as we think about prevention, so much of it does come down, come down to our diet. How are they getting that much fiber in their diet? They, they, you know, they eat all kinds of roots and tubers and, mm -hmm. and, you know, they, you know, they probably, you know, get a little bit of meat from hunting, but they're mostly subsisting on, um, you know, food that they can gather. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, I make a list of prebiotic foods and I give my patients this list. I go, look, eat as much of these as you can. You know, my, my favorite on the list is jicama, you know, those big, oh, ugly, yeah. and those are yummy. Oh, they're delicious, right? And and you can cut them in little strips. And we just keep a you know a, a glass container in the refrigerator full of cut up jicama, and it will go with anything. And you know you can make lovely salads with it. And so you know is that you know, not high flat. in sugar? I thought I'd heard jicama was high in sugar. It's not high in sugar. No, I, I couldn't tell you okay. off the top of my head what the glycemic index is. But I'm going to um, go back to like, eating them again. Yeah, taking them out of my diet. 
Yeah. And then, you know, all the things like flax and chia mm-hmm. I mean, and any kind of fibrous vegetables are going, going to, you know, help increase your, your prebiotics. One of the amazing case studies that you shared with your community was the hyperbaric oxygen therapy that had reversed uh, a child who had experienced near drowning. It had reversed the brain atrophy and the major neurologic deficits that that child had experienced. Mm-hmm. What have you seen with the use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy with your patients in reversing dementia? And really, at what age does it actually work? Who does it work best for? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. Um, I have not at this point sent any of my patients for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, but um, I have consulted with somebody I know in San Francisco who's an expert and treats lots of people. And I, I did ask him about that that case with the young girl and the drowning. And um, and so what happens with the hyperbaric oxygen is that it you, you go in a pressurized chamber that gives you lots of oxygen. And so that increases oxygenation of all of your tissues, including your brain. And, and, you know, the oxygen binds to our red blood cells and then the red blood cells carry them around to different, you know, organs and deliver that oxygen. And we need oxygen, um, to sustain life, especially certain organs use up a lot of oxygen. They're mm-hmm. high energy consumers and pretty much the brain and the heart are the biggies with that. So it does make sense that if you can increase the oxygen in the brain, it might somehow bring more healing elements into the brain. And, and one area where there is some data is when people are having a stroke. I know one of my functional medicine neurology teachers, Datis Karazian, told us if somebody's having an ischemic attack or a stroke, get them into a hyperbaric oxygen chamber right away because that's going to help, you know, reoxygenate the tissue that is you know, in the process of dying from the stroke. Now, once the tissue is dead, can can it still be a benefit? Mm-hmm. If it's dead, it's not going to be able to take up any oxygen. Mm-hmm. But there's there's always neuroregeneration happening. And so, you know, a whole big exciting, you know, topic these days is neuroplasticity and, and right. the capacity of our brain to grow new neurons and to regenerate. When I went to medical school, we were taught, oh, by the time you're a certain age, you have all the neurons you're going to have and you're just going to be losing them. And we know that was so wrong. Um, they've studied people even at the time of death and put them in in um, scanners that can look at the metabolic activity of the brain and give them tasks of learning things and they can see new synaptic connections between the neurons happening even when people are elderly and dying you're still making new neurons so um so the notion of anything we can do to stimulate these neurons um definitely can help and it's you know one of the facets of our dementia programs we want to remove all of the causes of the neurodegeneration and then at the same time we want to add in things that will help support growth of new neurons um, so, um, there's, you know, many ways we can do, do that now. And, um, I mean, we have pretty clear that the best data that we have for regeneration of the brain is with exercise and meditation. Those mm. are the two very clearly defined areas. And, um, the exercise is kind of a no brainer. We know that if you exercise hard for four minutes, you will increase a hormone called BDNF, and that means brain-derived neurotrophic factor. 
So it's a neurotrophic factor, meaning trophic means life. Mm -hmm. And so it's bringing life to those neurons. It's sustaining and creating new neurons in your brain. So just brief burst of intense exercise will, you know, give you some BDNF. Um, and so, um, you know, that's just such an important component of any kind of long-term health. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of data on exercise and the immune system and mm-hmm. all of the metabolic factors, but it, it's very well validated for the brain. And, um, what's and the then, minimum exercise that you recommend for your patients? You know, that is such an awesome area of research. There's, um, an exercise physiologist who has looked at, um, interval training. Yeah. And, you know, and then he's, you know, it started out with, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes. They have it down to two minutes. Wow. Two, two minutes of intense exercise, like two or three times a week can totally change people's lipids and their blood sugar. And it's very exciting and very clear data that you don't have to, you know, be out there doing marathon running to stay healthy. But if you push yourself really hard just for a couple of minutes at a time, so say you're out hiking and you say, you know what, oh, look at that hill. I'm just going to for, you know, till I get to the top of that hill, I'm just going to push as hard as I can. You're going to set um, mechanisms in action that are going to give you benefits. I ran into a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a while and I said, wow, you're looking really great. You know, what are you doing? Are you really working out hard? And he said, oh no, since I found that data on interval training, I'm just doing a couple of minutes a wow. few times a week. And he said, it's totally remade my body even. So, you know, if it's changing your body, it's cha- changing your brain. It's increasing that oxygenation. It's increasing the BDNF. So, um, it's the same thing with meditation. You know, you do not have to sit in half lotus um, for 20 minutes and meditate at a time. The, the data is pretty clear that 12 minutes a day of mindfulness or meditation can change your brain. And those 12 minutes don't have to be done all at once. So you can just take a few minutes, you know, maybe when you first wake up, maybe when you get in the bed, maybe when you're, you know, um, washing the dishes, uh, just turn off your brain, come into your body, do some breathing. And, you know, there's just little ways to make this stuff simple. It doesn't have to be, you know, an hour of exercise and, you know, a half hour of meditation every day. But putting in little small sound bites of that throughout the day, those will all have beneficial effects for people. You are so right. Sometimes we make such a big deal out of little things, like in terms of working out. Oh, if I don't work out an hour, I might as well not work out. If I'm not going to do 30 minutes of kind of proper meditation, I might as well not meditate. Whereas the reality is you can do, to your point, just two minutes of high intensity interval training, or you can just do 12 minutes of informal meditation. It doesn't have to be a formal structured chanting meditation practice to see results. That's such good advice and such a great reminder to all of us that incorporate that into what I call lifestyle redesign, right? That's you're redesigning your lifestyle for a healthier brain. And you're going to do it by incorporating just two to four or five minutes of high intensity interval training exercise and 10 to 12 minutes of meditation during the day, not even in one sitting. That's, that's just right. great advice. Yeah, it brings me to yeah. one other thing, yes, and it'll segue into your ketogenic question. Yes. I was going to say, um, with with regard to the diet, um, you know, we have the interval training for the exercise, but we also have the notion of intermittent fasting for the diet mm. and and that um 
that feeds into the ketogenic question. So um, there's been some nice data showing that when people really restrict their calories, that it causes all kinds of metabolic benefits as far as their lipids or diabetes and, um, you know, then their risks for heart disease, Alzheimer's, all these kind of things. And that um, research segued into, you know, it's really hard to have two days a week that you eat 500 calories. You know, you have a social life, you got to go to a meeting where lunch is served, things like that. And so what what's been found now is if we fast every day for, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours, Mm -hmm. that will take us into a state where we'll derive those kind of benefits. And it's not that hard to do. You just restrict your calories into, you know, 8 to 12 hours of the day. Some people, you know, can get by with not eating for longer periods of time than others. And if you're the kind of person that you're, you're under a lot of stress and your adrenals are shot and you have to eat every two hours to maintain your blood sugar, then don't do that kind of diet. You're not ready for it. But, Mm -hmm. but, but many people, you know, don't like to eat late at night or some people don't like to eat in the morning, you know, and you can just wait to start eating at, you know, noon and then you can eat until eight o'clock at night or something. And then, you know, stop eating. And so when you stop eating for an extended period of time, our body first is burning sugar. So um, I told you carbs equal sugar. So mm-hmm. any kind of carbohydrates or any sugars you eat, your body's going to grab that and start burning that as fuel. But when you deprive your body of those sugar and carbs as fuel, it will start burning fat. And when it burns these fats, it creates these byproducts called ketone bodies. And those ketone bodies, very, they're, they sharpen our brain function. They heighten the brain and the thinking. And, and we've seen in working with some of our dementia patients that when we, when we put them in a mildly ketogenic diet, that alone can be very beneficial for some people's memory. So it's giving their brain a kind of fuel that they can burn more effectively. Um, so that it supports its function. And one of the things that we know with regard to Alzheimer's is that, and with aging in general, the brain can lose its ability to process glucose. And so mm-hmm. if all we're doing is feeding it glucose and it's not able to utilize that well, well, one, it'll just get stored as fat, and two, it won't be doing what we need it to do. So if we can, you know, restrict the sugar and carbs and give it more ketone bodies, um, the brain is able to utilize that even with aging. So it, it can heighten brain function with everybody. And we've known for almost a century, I think, the data with children with intractable seizures, when they put them on a ketogenic diet, it changes their brain and it can, for many of those kids, um, you know, stop their seizure activity. So it is really changing, you know, the, the transmission in the brain. Um, the ketogenic diet um, with, with Alzheimer's, we like our patients to be in mild ketosis. It doesn't have to be super high level uh, of ketosis. And there's so much research happening in this area. And now many people are recommending intermittent ketosis so that, you know, you, you eat a diet that, that puts you in ketosis for part of the week. And then you take a day where, you know, a day or two, we don't really have clear data on, on, you know, how much is enough, how many days off, um, that data is not there yet. And it, it's probably individualized for different people. Um, I don't think everybody should be on a ketogenic diet. There are some people who have a lot of problems with their lipids and, um, and you know, that needs to be monitored when you start pouring in a, a lot of fats. But 
for the most part, many people do quite well with it. And, and the ketogenic diet really means restricting the carbs to less than 50 grams a day. And instead of eating so many carbs, you need to pour in healthy fats. And we know that the brain is mostly fat. It's like 60, 65% fat. And so we need fats to maintain our brain. And it turns out cholesterol is a healthy fat. So all of our, all of my life, we were taught, oh, got to, got to have your cholesterol low because right. that, that's a driver of heart disease. Well, and take fat one, free, right? Everything's yeah. fat free. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, one more thing I've had to unlearn from what I was taught as dogma in medical school that turned out not to be correct at all. I can tell you from personal experience that I, was a, uh, you know, I was told to eat fat, fat free or low fat for health. And so that's what I did. And one of the drivers of my brain degeneration when I had dementia was my cholesterol was too low. So my cholesterol was always 130 to 135. And I always thought, oh, it's great. I'm not going to get heart disease, you know, right. feel good about that. Well, what did I get? I got dementia. <laughs> You know, I'd much rather have heart disease than dementia because, you know, before recently we didn't have any hopes of curing dementia. But one of the ways among several that I got my brain function back was I changed my diet and I eat high fat, healthy fats at every single meal. And I got my cholesterol up above 200. And that was one of the factors which coincided with my brain coming back online and, and working again. And I see that in some of my very severely ill psychiatric patients. A lot of them have very low cholesterols. And, of course, their brain isn't working. Turns out the cholesterol is a precursor to our thyroid hormones. Oh. It's a precursor to our sex hormones. And it's a precursor to our stress hormones. So if we don't have enough cholesterol... We can't make all these hormones that we need to drive all of our metabolic processes. And, you know, we can't make enough neurotransmitters because our brain is, is, doesn't have, you know, enough mass to do its job. So, so the healthy fats are important for everybody. And, um, the healthy fats are kind of a pyramid. Um, coconut oil seems to be coconut milk and coconut oil, um, mm-hmm. seems to be a, a fat that our bodies can assimilate quite easily and make these ketone bodies and, and, um, we can, for the most part, digest that well. Um, so coconut, avocado, olive oil, um, and then it kind of the free range meat, free range chicken, eggs, um, and then nuts and seeds. All of those are, are kind of healthy fats. And so it's important to, to, you know, have that kind of food at every meal to support your brain. That sounds great because you know what? There's nothing tastier than a, a yummy, full-fat, creamy meal. And that was one of the things I learned um, when I started to treat myself during yeah. my bout of illness. I just felt better and satiated and my cravings went away when I started cooking with a lot of fat, with a lot of good, heavy cheese and coconut oil and sort of got off the fat free uh, cycle that has been, you know, really touted by the media and by doctors as the way to go. Right. So I'm so glad to see that fat is back and fat is cool. (laughs) Um, It's just I'm just so happy you can't imagine. I mean, I'm you know, we make our own full fat, full cream ice creams with coconut cream and avocados and coconut oil and ghee and they are so delicious and so satisfying. And good to know that they're good for my brain, too. Yeah, they make us full, as you mentioned. You feel full and you feel happy. You feel satiated. And that means you won't be going for the sugar an hour later. 
Exactly, exactly. One of the things that I see a lot of, especially in the teens these days, is veganism. Mm-hmm. There's this whole fad, and maybe I'm biased because I'm getting to see, you know, my own college-going daughter and her friends that go vegan all the time. Right. What are the challenges that we face when we go on a vegan diet? And I know you've talked specifically about the challenges. And I know depression is is pretty severe. Anxiety, depression is very high in teens these days. So mm-hmm. what is the correlation between sort of being a vegan and depression and, and mood disorders and brain function? Um, the vegan diet can be done. Um, and, and I know people who are conscious vegans and, um, and, and it can be done, but it's not easy to do because it isn't our natural diet, right? We did grow up, you know, when we evolved, you know, from the primates and, you know, an early man, you know, we evolved eating anything we could find. Mm-hmm. So we were omnivores. And so there are certain nutrients that we cannot get from plants. And, and I think every diet should include as much of a plant-based component as possible. I mean, we do get so many beautiful nutrients from those plants, but um, we know that when you don't eat animal products, um, you're not going to be able to get enough B12. And so people definitely need to monitor their B12 levels and supplement with B12. We know that um, that they have more tendency toward anemia. And, you know, typically we know we can get iron from red meat and, and things like that. And you can get iron from leafy green vegetables. But this, the, the problem that I see is I've had vegetarian patients that don't eat vegetables. Hmm. And, you know, I had a patient come to me with schizophrenia and um, he was from India and he was Hindu and he, you know, believed in, you know, being a vegetarian. And I ask all my patients to give me a three day food diary so I can really get a look at what they're eating. Mm-hmm. And, and this gentleman only ate white foods. He mm-hmm. ate rice and non and rice crackers. And that's about all he ate. And I said, you're a vegetarian. Where are the vegetables? He, didn't like he did not like them. And, and so, you know, it doesn't take a doctor to look at that diet and say, my God, no wonder this guy's brain and immune system has problems, right? Um, it's kind of a remarkable thing when you, you know, when you write down what you're eating and you take a look at it, it will tell you. It will, it will, it's a pretty good predictor of, you know, what's going to happen with people's health. So, um, so that's the problem, you know, and also it's hard to get full on vegetables. And, and so if, if vegetarians and vegans are adding in enough healthy fats, um, that can help offset that great. Otherwise, what I see is they just tend to go for carbs and sugars to stay filled up because the vegetables don't do that. Um, but um, I definitely have known people that are vegetarians and vegans that have ended up horribly anemic and needing transfusions and the like. So um, you just have to be cautious about, um, you know, getting getting the right nutrients. And it's just easier, you know, mm-hmm. if you do put in some amount of animal products. And um, we also have very nice data, you know, on eating fish. We know people that eat that eat fish once or twice a week actually have a, a lot lower risk of Alzheimer's and it's those omega threes. Now we have to offset it with the toxins, you know, that have happened with our oceans and our, our rivers, but um, definitely eating, um, you know, eating the, especially the smaller fish, you know, sardines and anchovies and, and then the wild caught salmon, um, things like that can, can also be helpful for the brain. 
That sounds great. Well, this has been so insightful. We're coming towards the end of our, our fabulous session, chat session here. I've got two last questions for you. The first one, is Alzheimer's and dementia reversible? What has been your experience and how did you pull it off? Right. So, you know, classically, we were told, you know, there's no cure for Alzheimer's. We've had dozens of studies. We have, you know, five drugs approved and they will slow it down slightly, but they don't work. I, I, I did all those drug studies and, and I, I know they don't work. And, and so what we know is that Typically, people are with Alzheimer's are concerned because the brain builds up all these amyloid plaques. Well, we have drugs that will wipe out all those amyloid plaques, but people don't get well from that. It didn't translate into clinical improvement. So we have to catch this disease in a different way. And, and you know, ideally early, you know, um, prevention is, of course, you know, worth a thousand cures, but it's a multifactorial disease. And if we want to reverse it, we have to look at all of these various factors that, that are contributing. And when we look at these various factors um, and put them all in order, this is when we see it all come together and people improve. So we talked about some of the hormones and the effects on the brain. We talked about the diet and the effect on the brain. Um, one of the things we, ha- we haven't touched on is, a few things we haven't touched on. We haven't touched on sleep. Sleep is a critical, critical driver of brain health and, and, you know, was just discovered about two years ago that when we sleep, our brain detoxifies and, and the cerebrospinal fluid inside our brain literally starts churning and churning and, and the toxins are supposed to somehow coalesce and be removed from the body while we sleep. And I think we all know, especially as we age, we, we, we see it. I used to be able to go, you know, a couple hours a night sleep and still function fine the, the next day. And, you know, it's, it's getting clearer to me. If, if I'm not getting enough sleep, I can actually see the changes in my brain function. So that's a huge driver. You know, people that are chronically sleeping six hours a night, it's not enough. You, you need to be getting good sleep and, you know, and there's all kind of layers with that and the stress and the sleep apnea, which is becoming so prevalent. And you don't have to be overweight to have sleep apnea. So that's one factor that we check in all our dementia patients and anybody that's not sleeping well should check for sleep apnea. Um, but the other big area we haven't touched on at all, and we might have to save this for a different conversation, you know, but it's the, the um, we touched a little on the toxins and then there's the infections. So toxins and infections have been a huge driver in brain inflammation, both from traditional psychiatric illness as well as dementia. And in probably because of our more toxic environment, we're having in our, you know, poorer diets, we're having uh, worse immune systems, and that's rendering us more vulnerable to mm-hmm. all of these infections. But um, I do a lot of um, a lot of work with um, people that are having brain degeneration from Lyme disease and some of those co-infections. Um, any of what I see often in people. When, when they have things like Lyme disease, it reactivates all kinds of viruses that we have in our body. You know, a lot of us have had Epstein-Barr virus. We've had cytomegalovirus. We've had herpes simplex virus, different kind of things. And those viruses stay in our body and our immune system keeps them in check. But when we have, when our system for various reasons gets under stress, those viruses can reactivate and 
so many of those viruses affect brain function. I mean, they found high levels of herpes simplex virus in something like 99% of patients with Alzheimer's that have died, you know, and they've done autopsies. And it's not to say that that's the cause of Alzheimer's. It's just one more factor. So infections in the brain are, are one more factor. Um, and the other thing that, um, that has very similar effects is mold and mycotoxin illness and um, with both the Lyme and the mold, three quarters of people are not genetically sensitive to those things and they will get sick if, you know, they can have a mild flu if they get bitten with a tick with Lyme, but they'll clear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are in, in a situation with toxic molds, if you're in uh, toxic molds, anybody can have some symptoms and get sick, but as soon as you get out of it, your immune system will clear it. But about a quarter of people have a genetic proclivity to having problems with both of those kind of things. And, and, and so those infections or mold illness can set up these cascades of inflammation in the brain. They can affect all of these um, hormones in our brain that drive all kinds of various things. And, um, and so it's a, it's a huge factor um, when we have somebody that is presenting with cognitive decline that we look at all of these factors. So we look at all their hormone levels. We look at all their nutrient levels. We look for infections. We look for toxins. You know, we look at their genetics. Um, we look at their sleep. We look at their exercise. It's like looking at all of these various factors. Um, and, and so that's when it becomes important to, you know, um, you know, the sicker you are, the more you need to dig into all of these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And is Alzheimer's reversible? What has been your experience in that? Yeah, um, we can't reverse it in everyone. Um, but, but we're having tremendous success. Um, um, I work with Dr. Dale Bredesen, who, um, has published, um, quite a bit. He's, uh, he published, um, um, about a functional approach to reversing dementia. And, um, you know, we're continuing to work with him on that. He's training lots of, of clinicians now, um, in this functional method that we use to reverse dementia. Mm-hmm. And, um, I have a study group with him and a few other people and we share our cases and we look at all the various factors and who gets better with what. And a tremendous amount of people were able to reverse the Alzheimer's. So, you know, um, it, it, nobody's going to say we can reverse Alzheimer's in everyone, but we should be able to prevent it in everyone. That's where we have to start. But we can do head scans where we have a special, um, we have an MRI that we can run through a special program. It's called the volumetric MRI. And that program will image the size of all of the various structures in the brain. So we can say, oh, my goodness, this person's hippocampus, which is your memory center in your brain, mm-hmm. is down in the bottom five percentile. And then we can, you know, do this multifactorial program where we work on removing causes and we work on rebuilding the brain. And um, we can see those numbers come back up to normal. And that coincides with people's functioning coming back to normal. So it's pretty exciting. And, um, you know, it can be a pretty intense program um, to work with all of these factors. But, but for people that are actively getting demented, you know, there's no time to lose. You, you have to have to to 
work on these various factors. And definitely because we see people improve, you know, it, we know it's worthwhile. And we also see people that have improved. And then when they start going back into their former lifestyle, we see them decline again. So um, this is a case where you've got to maintain all of these facets as a lifestyle. So, you know, we know that people have a genetic tendency toward Alzheimer's, but mm-hmm. many, many of the patients I work with do not have Alzheimer's genes. So that's not the only factor. And even when you have Alzheimer's genes, you have the power to turn those genes on or turn them off based on your epigenetic factors, your diet and your lifestyle and your toxins and all the things we've been talking about. So so people should not despair when they have an APOE4 gene, which quite, you know, I think a quarter of the population does. Um, that That does not mean that you're going to get Alzheimer's. It just means that you need to pay attention and do all these things so that you don't go down that path. Now that makes sense for everyone that's listening to our podcast. That's over 40 and worried about dementia or Alzheimer's. What is the one absolute must mandatory thing you recommend that they can do immediately? Well, you know, it's never one thing. So mm-hmm. things diet, you know, mindfulness, stress reduction, sleep and exercise. Those are the those are the easy things under everybody's control, you know, and then beyond that, it's worthwhile, you know, to get, you know, medical checkups where you can look at all of these inflammatory markers, look at your blood sugar control, you know, look at your lipid control, look at your, you know, C-reactive protein, your homocysteine, those inflammatory markers, look at your key um, vitamin and mineral um levels your b12 and vitamin d are huge drivers in in dementia and deficiencies of those clearly cause dementia so that's very easy for your doctor to to monitor once a year and check your levels we know when your vitamin d level is less than 30 you have a 75 percent higher risk of of dementia and when it gets less than 20 you have a 125 percent higher risk of dementia wow You and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We are too far north to make enough vitamin D here without supplementing. I've I've only had two patients out of hundreds and hundreds of patients in the last couple of years that had enough vitamin D without supplementing. One of them actually was, she lived in San Diego and she was a swimming instructor and she was in the water all day. And she said, even in the winter, I, I do have to supplement because my levels drop. And the other person had some kind of genetic abnormality that had super high vitamin D levels and, you know, was an outlier. But but basically, we evolved at the equator to extract vitamin D from the sunlight. Mm-hmm. And so when you move farther away from the equator, you're not going to be getting getting enough vitamin D. So easy. Ask your doctor every year, check my vitamin D level, check my vitamin B12 level, you know, and then and then check these metabolic markers and, you know, stay on top of those things. Dr. Kat, you're amazing for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And, you know, definitely come visit with us. I see that you're beginning a clinical trial on how to use nutrition to reverse dementia. We'd love to hear from you how that goes and Maybe we can talk about a nutritional plan once you've proven it in your clinical trials. Oh, yes. And that trial, it's not just nutrition. So that's working with Dr. Dale Bredesen that I mentioned. And, and I, I would say for people that are, that are particularly interested, he has a, a book that's coming out next week, actually. It's called The End of Alzheimer's. And he is definitely the, you know, 
indisputable expert in this regard. Um, you know, he's been a neurology professor and was the head of the Buck Aging Institute. And so he's been a bench researcher into all of these drivers um, from the basic science aspect. And then he learned the functional medicine approach and put it all together. So um, I think that book will be a, a wonderful resource. And I also want to mention there's a, a website called um, apoe4.info. And APOE4 is the Alzheimer gene. And whether you have the gene or not, that website is a wealth of information about how to put into effect these kind of things that we were talking about with diet, lifestyle, ketogenic diet, stress reduction, brain training. We didn't talk much about brain training, but the program that I am using with my patients is called Brain HQ. And they have very nice data that shows that you can, you know, prevent and reverse some brain aging by doing their fun games that you can do on your, you know, iPad or your cell phone or computer. Um, so those, I would say, are a couple of great resources. And, yes, we're looking forward to the clinical trial. Um, we're also working with colleagues that are doing a parallel trial at the Cleveland Clinic. And so hopefully in another another year, um, we'll be having some some more, you know, great data and numbers to report to people because we do know this method works for people. And for anyone who's ever experienced a, a parent or a spouse with Alzheimer's, I know that they're waiting for that day to come when we can say well, it, we've had so the it, end of Alzheimer's. Yes, it's here now. I would say seek out a, you know, functional medicine practitioner. Um, even if you don't have someone in your area that is experienced in Alzheimer's, a functional medicine approach um, can work. Um, so, you know, a good place to find a practitioner in your area. Um, the Institute for Functional Medicine has a find a practitioner site. Um, their website is functionalmedicine.org, functionalmedicine.org. And right on the homepage, you can put in your zip code and, and you can, you know, look and we're, you know, getting more and more clinicians training in functional medicine. Um, it's, it's an unstoppable movement because we know it works. So that's what I would encourage people to do. Any, any problems, you know, definitely reach out and, and get someone to guide you through all this. Thank you so much again, Dr. Kat. I really appreciate you taking so much time out today and sharing all that's coming up in research and all the great strategies and recommendations on preventing and curing dementia and Alzheimer's. And for the rest of you, you've got your marching orders. You know what you need to do. Go get some <laughs> vitamin D. Go get some high-intensity exercise. Eat right. Sleep right. And you will have an amazing long life. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.